Welcome to the Laurie Lawrence podcast, Stuff the Silver, We're Going for Gold. This podcast came about by me wanting to value add to my online swim teacher and coaching platform, WorldwideSwimSchool.com. It was simply an idea that I'd read and share chapters of the two books that I'd written about my eight Olympic Games adventures. And when I run out of chapters, I'd interview some of the great sportsmen and sportswomen that I'd encountered over the 50 years of my international coaching career. Tell your friends, if it helps one person expand their lives a little or achieve their dreams, it will have served the purpose. If it doesn't do this, try at least to remember, the harder you work, the harder it is to surrender. This one concerns Debbie Flintoff King, a true champion and winner of the 400 metre hurdles at Seoul Olympic Games. At 7 o'clock on a morning, 11 weeks before the Auckland Commonwealth Games of 1990, Debbie had already won the Olympic gold medal two years earlier. I was down visiting the Flintoff Kings. I was relaxing in their lounge room, a neat unit in Melbourne. Phil and I were chatting about the values of cross-training and specifically of athletic innovations which might help swimmers when the front door swung open and Debbie breezed in. Debbie had been out for her early morning jog. She was dressed in a loose-fitting top, fluoro athletic tights and, of course, Nike runners. Fresh juice, anyone? she called and gracefully moved into a compact and spotlessly clean kitchen. Coffee, thanks, Deb, I called, noting her frown of disapproval. Quickly, I changed the order to an extra-large fresh orange juice. I feel great, Phil. So fit, she enthused as she stretched on tiptoes to get a larger glass for my juice. Her calf muscles rippled. Her legs were lean, trim and muscular. She looks fit, I said, and Phil nodded in agreement. We've been to Auckland. What? We've been to Auckland. Why? I wanted to check out the track. I wanted to have Debbie run some bends. I wanted her to check the prevailing winds, check the accommodation, transport and the training tracks, as well as I was looking for local masseurs and physios. Who funded you? I inquired. We did, mate. Who else? Oh, that'd be a bit exy, wouldn't it? I said. Doesn't matter, Laurie. We want to win a gold medal in Auckland. We must prepare correctly. We'll get the gold medal yelled Debbie happily, but more determination in her voice than I'd ever heard before. What a combination, I thought to myself. A superb team. Phil, with his professional future planning, always paying meticulous attention to detail, and Debbie, with her total commitment and self-discipline. No wonder she's Olympic champion, I thought. Then I asked, Where are the Channel 7 studios? I'll get you a street directory. It's not too far from here, said Phil. Debbie stretched out like an agile great cat on the lounge floor. There she commenced her daily ritual, an hour-long plus of stretching and yoga exercises. I marvelled at her athleticism, her dedication, her single-mindedness, 
and her continual drive for perfection. Memories of her magnificent last gasp, 400 metre victory in Seoul flooded through my mind. Visions of her desperate last lunge at the tape to pass Tatiana Ledeskiva, the Russian, came back with great clarity. This young woman was reinforcing my belief that attitude is the major key to success. Here's the directory, Laurie. Take our car, mate. Phil's return jerked me back from the recall of Debbie's flashing smile at the sole gold medal presentation to the present. Are you sure? I said. Yes, yes. No problems. Deb and I will go in one car today. We have an appointment with a prospective sponsor of our dream to run the Debbie Flintoff King Olympic Gold Athletic Camp for Juniors. Will you get it? I asked. I hope so, he replied. I'd love to do some talent identification work. There are young country kids out there crying out to be coached, hungry for knowledge, information, anything that will make them better in our sport. Also, there are parents who need educating. The main reason is Deb wants to put something back into the sport that's been so good to her. Phil gulped down the last of his juice and muesli, stood up and headed for the door. Oh, before we go, Deb has designed a T-shirt for kids to wear. I'll show you quickly. See what you think. He rumbled through T-shirts and tracksuits in the clean washing basket. He produced Deb's Ladder of Achievement. I have to have one, I said. Not yet. This is a prototype, said Phil. Well, I have to at least get a copy of the words. There and then, I sat down and wrote them out. Ladder of Achievement. Zero percent. I won't. Ten percent. I can't. Twenty percent. I don't know how. Thirty percent. I wish I could. Forty percent. What is it? Fifty percent. I think I might. Sixty percent. I just might. Seventy percent. I think I can. Eighty percent. I can. Ninety percent. I will. A hundred percent. I did. Come on. You'll be late. I'll show you how to get out of the garage. I can't have you being late for the Bert Newton show, said Phil. No, I'm looking forward to meeting Bert, I said as I grabbed my coat, straightened my tie, glanced in the mirror and ran my fingers quickly through my hair before giving chase. Wait for me, I called. Phil was already at the lift, waiting. We took the lift to the basement in silence. Do you know, it has always intrigued me why people don't talk in lifts. I vowed then and there that henceforth I would always chat in lifts. We threaded our way through narrow concrete passageways to the car park, and Phil threw me the keys. Jump in, reverse out, Follow me. I'll show you how to get out, he yelled over his shoulder as he headed for the exit. I threw my bag into the boot onto a pile of papers and socks. Firstly, I had to move a large training pace clock, four pairs of Nike spikes and two sets of starting blocks. Typical coach's car, I thought. But at least it was a hell of a lot better organised and the boot was neater than that belonging to the great grand old man of Australian swimming, 
Forbes Carlyle. Phil's car was the Hilton compared to Forbes's. They reckoned Forbes's old machine hadn't been tidied since the day he bought it after the 1956 Olympics. Phil was already at the electronic gate. Hurry up! Reverse it out! I've got more to do than waste my time on potential TV personalities. There are Commonwealth gold medals to be won. Hold on, hold on. I can't work these gears. I'm not bloody Dick Johnson, I shouted back. My trouble had started. I was thankful Phil hadn't seen me stall Deb's car three times as I tried to get out without hitting that bloody big concrete post. Why do they always place these things near where I have to drive? I thought. That's third gear, shouted Phil. Put the car in first gear to start. He reached in through the open window and took the magnetic plate from under the dash. If you put this plate flat onto that electronic gadget over there, the gate will open for you. True to his word, the big steel security gate rumbled open. Oh, that's a bit fancy for a Queensland boy. I've never seen that before, I called out. I then fumbled to find first gear, and the gate slammed shut. Oh my God. I had a fleeting vision of the huge steel gate crashing down on the bonnet of Deb's shining new BMW. You've got ten seconds to get out once the gate is up, said Phil. Show a bit of courage, time it right, and you'll have no problems. I started to sweat. This is a BMW, I thought. Deb's BMW. Why hadn't I taken a cab? Phil put his magnetic plate onto the electronic gadget once more, and the huge steel gates rumbled up again. Go! he yelled, but I stalled the car again. Beads of sweat appeared on my brow. My skin went clammy. My hands were sweaty. My throat dry. My heart started to pump. And I mean pump, really pump. More pressure here than at the Olympics, I thought. Where's Armstrong? Where's the animal? Oh, I need him. He's good in pressure situations. The giant gate slammed shut again. A bloke got caught under there last week, remarked Phil. It stuffed his car. I'll get a cab. Two grand to fix his bonnet. I'll, I'll get a cab. You will not. Debbie won't hear of it. I'll get a cab. Don't worry, it's Deb's car. I'll get a cab. No guts, no glory, boy. Go for it. Let me get a cab. No way. He hit the electronic gadget once more and yelled, Go! Words I had uttered to my young charges thousands of times flashed into my subconscious. Never consider failure. How I escaped that garage is a miracle, but pride is a great motivator, and my pride wouldn't let Mr. Phil King, athletic coaching supremo and a Victorian to boot, take the wheel and put one over this humble banana bender. Five minutes later, out on the road, my heart rate returned to something like normal, and I began to loosen up. The radio was blaring, and I started to whistle the DJ's morning drive time song. Don't worry, be happy. Melbourne's morning peak hour on St Kilda Road is an experience not to be missed. Cars bumper to bumper, horns honking, 
businessmen on car phones, blinkers flashing. Oh, my nerves were jangling. Remember your defensive driving, I told myself. Oh, roadworks. Three lanes into two. I waved to a couple of strapping main road guys leaning nonchalantly on their shovels, watching their mates dig up the road. I winked at a couple of school kids in the back of a Corolla. Then I glanced down at the BMW's instrument panel. <laughs> my skin went clammy, my hands sweaty, my throat dry, my heart started to pump again. It was happening twice in one day. I couldn't believe it. The Flintoff Kings must take strange pleasure in having me panic. The petrol gauge of the BMW showed empty. My mind raced. I had myself running out of petrol, pushing Debbie's car on a busy St Kilda road, or, worse still, dumping it and having to hitchhike to the nearest petrol station. The next five minutes were among the most agonising of my life. I gently nursed Debbie's car through Melbourne's peak hour traffic, frantically searching for petrol. I was being extra careful not to rev the motor. Little clichés with which I regularly assailed my young charges kept flashing through my mind. By failing to prepare, you are preparing to fail. Why hadn't I checked the petrol gauge? Did Phil have a spare tank in the boot? No, only those bloody Nike running spikes. And then, at last, a petrol station. I flashed the blinker, did a quick U-turn, gave the forks to some guy who abused me, and coasted into the petrol station up to the super pump. Oh my God. Amazing. A large red-faced man with a slightly greying moustache came from the office. He was smiling and wiping his hands with an oily rag. Fill her up, mate, I shouted. Don't spare the cost. I tossed him the keys. I was relieved to be at a service station. One minute later, he was back at the window, giving me the strangest look. Anything else, mate? No thanks. Oil? No thanks. Check the water? No thanks. That'll be 28 cents, mate. And if it's any consolation to you, I've been pumping gas here for almost 28 years, and that's the least amount of money ever spent to fill a tank. You're kidding. No, 28 cents, mate. And his eyes lightened. Say, I know you. You're that swimming coach, that fellow from Queensland. You're the silly one, aren't you? I was mortified. I gave him 50 cents and told him to keep the change and to tell no one he'd met me. I arrived back at Flintoff King's after a busy day with the media. I was completely drained, but ready to relax and laugh with this fun-loving duo. I told them about the broken petrol gauge and we laughed for some 20 minutes. I had parked the car on the street. My dad once told me, son, never get bitten by the same dog twice. And I really didn't want to run the gauntlet of that steel automatic gate. When I walked in, Deb was on the floor where I had left her earlier in the day. Her normal infectious smile had been replaced by a concerned and sombre expression. Deb pulled a hamstring at training tonight, Phil whispered hoarsely. What? I asked, incredulous. She's been icing it now for over an hour. She's going to need all the professional help and courage in the world to beat this one and win in Auckland. 
Oh, God, why now? He mused. It's hard enough beating opponents without having to overcome an injury as well. I'll do it, Deb whispered. I've got to be there. I've put in too many hours on the training track to watch these games on TV. Her voice choked and tears appeared in her eyes. Eleven weeks later, tears rolled down my face as I watched Debbie beaten into second place by the blue-eyed English blonde Sally Gunnell from Essex. Debbie's dream of winning three consecutive Commonwealth Games gold medals was shattered as she faltered at the last hurdle. Sally, much of whose training was done on the family farm at Chigwell, sensed Debbie's momentary weakness as she approached the last hurdle. She seized the opportunity and ran like a wild animal chasing prey. Victory was Gunnell's. To Debbie Flintoff King, winning is important, vital, almost the reason for her existence. She was born to win. At the press conference later, I saw a different Debbie, a woman who so clearly showed why she is a champion. There was no mention of the torn hamstring, the hours spent on the physio's table. There was no mention of the pool visits to try to maintain cardiovascular fitness and leg strength. No mention that she was only able to run one complete hurdle circuit in 11 weeks. There was no mention of the late nights of therapy with Phil icing her torn hamstring and tenderly running the ultrasound machine over the injured muscle in a desperate race against time. There were no excuses. Just dignity in defeat. Debbie, we love you. That defeat showed why you are a true champion. Thank you for listening to this latest episode of Stuff the Silver. We're going for gold. To stay up to date with all episodes, please subscribe to this podcast. For more information, visit laurielawrence.com.au. It's alive to the fire!